Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. We've got two fabulous guests with us today. Uh, We've got Kate Reynolds, who's a professor of psychology at the Australian National University. Her research addresses intergroup relations and social identity. She's interested in broad research questions about the impact of groups and norms and on individuals' attitudes, well-being and behaviour. Kate's published over a hundred journal articles, book chapters and co-edited book volumes and her research (laughs) has appeared in highly regarded scientific journals, so very impressive uh, to say the least. She's currently involved in a very large-scale interdisciplinary study on social cohesion, diversity and integration Mm which is absolutely in line with what we want to investigate with you, mm-hmm. um, which looks to better understand social cohesion and how to strengthen it by working closely with public policy, social and business enterprises, local government and community organisations. And as a, a compliment to Kate, we have Fred Alali with us as well. Now, he is uh, a director uh, in the Department of Justice and Community Safety at v- in Victoria. Uh, Fred's got over 20 years of policy, project management and system-wide improvement experience across the public and private sectors uh, in Australia and in the UK. He's currently working as part of the Victorian government's efforts to keep Victorian businesses compliant uh, with the public health officer directions as a director of the Policy and Enforcement Review Office. But... One of the other areas that we know him from is that he is also very active with the African-Australian communities where he serves on a number of boards, including chair of the African Music and Cultural Festival and the treasurer of the Africa Day Australia Incorporated. So welcome to you both. It's absolutely delightful to have you here. We have two wonderful guests. We do, absolutely. (laughs) Especially after all of that introduction. Mm. Uh, We're really excited about the conversation ahead. So I thought maybe I might start by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your early life in Australia. What was that like? And and potentially did that in some way influence your views about social cohesion? So uh, Fred, maybe you first. Okay, thank you, Ampere, and great to be here. Um, Lydia Ampere, thanks for having me as a guest, uh, along with the amazing Kate. Look, so I would say, how was my journey to Australia? Relative, compared to others, um, I think my journey to Australia was relatively easy. Much easier path. I got, uh, uh, I would say, um, it was easier for me to get into Australian life, into Australian work. I actually had a job offer before I stepped foot on Australia, wow. on Australian soil. <laughs> does yeah. make a difference. Um, yeah. It makes a huge difference. So, and the reason why this came about, um, my wife and I got married in Hawaii and we came to Australia on honeymoon to Sydney and Cairns. We loved what we saw when uh, Sydney have a side and um, just watching life go by and just think, wow, the beauty. And then... Um, it was lunchtime and people in suits came out with their lunch packs, just 
sat on the bench and just enjoying and life just seemed perfect <laughs> and wonderful compared to the UK where we were based there. So mm. I actually again moved from the UK, which again was another um, made it less mm-hmm. of a yeah. jump or, or of, a, of a gap to integrate into Australian work life and general life. Um, with the shared history of the two um, countries. But so we we looked around and my wife said, wow, what a life. People enjoying, oh, this is Australia's financial capital and people still seemed relaxed, chilled out. And she said, wow, do you think we can live here? And I was like, well, I don't know, let's mm. check. I did a Google and chartered accountancy was on a shortage occupation list. I was a chartered accountant, applied and got the visa. And wow. that was the beginning of the story. Yeah. And then um, I was working for Ernst & Young, um, one of the big four professional services organizations in the UK then. I just asked a friend who was a colleague then, who was on Secomen from Australia that said, hey, what do you guys do in your finance and performance management function in Australia? And he said, send me your CV and I'll send it to somebody. And he sent my CV to a partner in Melbourne. Networks. And yeah. Networks, <laughs> which is another good story I tell about your networks is very important. Absolutely. And he sent it to this partner in Melbourne. And the partner looked at the CV and said to me, well, Fred, when you, when you come to Australia, I'd like to meet up with you. And that was it. And then we, 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 we had to then come to Australia within nine months of a visa being issued. Um, and, um, and we came. But we then went to Melbourne to meet this partner, had a coffee. And at the end of the coffee, the partner said, Fred, where would you, where would you like to start? Oh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and actually, I said, actually, we're not sure yet when I would like to start. Because at this point then, we'd now had a nine-month-old baby. Oh, wow. And I said nine-month-old baby. And from the journey of when we actually applied for the visa, from <laughs> when applying for the visa and me and us actually visiting Australia, It was a very quick process. When I applied, within three months, I had a response back to say, would like you to come and go and do your your medicals. And then we actually then said, actually, we couldn't do the medicals anymore at that point because my wife was pregnant. (laughs) And so because of the scans, x-ray and so on. And they said, no worries. We're happy to delay your application until the birth of your child. Wow. So that was, you know, so they held everything and they were really happy to have us and they were hold off. And then when the baby was born we did all the x-ray and they just added the baby to it and it's like welcome this is your visa and so on that can we contextualize <laughs> this <laughs> australia in terms of the era what what time what year literally this was i'm um, talking this was um 19 uh, sorry 2009 okay because i arrived in australia in wow. february 2010 mm-hmm. oh sorry january 2010 oh end my. of january 2010 so that was the journey I took. So the partner then said, where would you like to start? And I was like, I'm not actually sure. Mm-hmm. And then he said, okay, let's keep in touch. And um, and then I said to him, now look, okay, what would you like me to focus on? Because I was going back to the UK. I came on a, you know, get a visa stamp that, yep, mm-hmm. we're, we're here. But then you could then go back. And I said, what would be of benefit to Australia for me to do whilst I'm back in the UK? 
And it was like, well, you could focus on financial services or healthcare. That those are two areas that we're really focusing on. So I said, great. I said, financial services I can't do because I'll physically need to move practice because in the UK it's highly regulated. But healthcare I can. And so I moved back to the UK and I actually changed the focus of the work I did to working with healthcare organizations. And from then on, so just prepare myself so in for there. Australia. For Australia. Wow. And then literally about nine months later, after that conversation, he sent me a message. He said, Fred, are you still keen on coming to Australia? Because this will be a good time. And that was the push I need. Send the email to my wife. We've got this. What do you think? Pull the that's how we pulled Uprooted the, your life yep. and Australia. <laughs> so so that's wow. my that's my story. Thank so you, Fred. I came to Australia. Yep. with a job ready to, um, already waiting for me at a good company and did research, could negotiate Absolutely. my terms even before I came through here. So it was a great, for me, it was a great experience. Mm, and, yeah. But as then I started to then get involved in, even from a professional point of view, I'm also a chartered accountant from the UK. So the body here too, I got on board yeah. and became one of the um, executives in Victoria, representing Victoria. And then I started to listen to stories of new people moving from overseas or from the UK and also seeing how they were struggling to get a job and how mm. they were a lot of them were actually underemployed or 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 they had to take other jobs that were not con- commensurate with their skill set mm. and i thought this this was an issue there and um i started to think okay wow so there's a challenge there even though they're on the highly skilled migrant list and approved as highly skilled but still not being able to get the right yeah. job and a lot of them then get be to- they get being told that oh you don't have Australian experience. I'm like, well, you've just moved in. How can you get Australian yes. experience if you don't have? But you must al- also have been thinking, well, I didn't have Australian experience, and I, I came. Why is that a hurdle? Why is that a hurdle? Yeah. And we even yes. touched on it last week, we did. talking about you know how it, sometimes in this country we automatic from the start we use the uh, potential in, in yeah. a migrant, and sometimes we don't yeah. actually you know capitalize on their potential. But it seems in yeah. your in your case that Australia really capitalised on your potential from the moment Absolutely. you Absolutely, I set foot in here. But and it was yep. clearly easy for them to understand as yes. well. Yeah. Kate, Kate, tell us a little bit about your beginnings and how you got interested in social cohesion. Yeah, interesting. I haven't actually thought about some of those questions. So mm-hmm. I was just thinking about it then and I grew up in the uh, western suburbs of Brisbane Uh, It was quite a small, rural-like community, even though it was sort of an outer suburb. Uh, But just thinking about that idea of links to social cohesion, I think, you know, I grew up a long time ago, but in a time where we might call it today and we might talk about it again, this idea of civil society, where my parents, um, unlike you, Fred, in some ways, getting involved uh, and having time to be involved and being committed to being involved in activities that aren't about family and aren't necessarily about work. Uh, And I think that um, having that time, I can just think of my parents uh, who would kind of put me to shame with the committees that they were on and the work that they were doing in the local uh, area. So I think that's one thing that, um, you know, a very active, deliberate choice, I think, on the part of my parents to engage in that way in the area in which we grew up. Uh, But also uh, I think... You know, we, they also sort of cultivated friendships with people who had different views or might be from different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so even though I guess um, a very Anglo-Australian area, we did have friends uh, from different cultural backgrounds who were quite close. So I think both of those things, um, you know, tell us something about what might make social cohesion uh, and, uh, you know, just thinking about it now, a very active choice on the part of, of my parents to, to engage in that kind of way in their local area. So mm. I think that they're some of the early links or lessons from, from those links um, that are important for social cohesion. As a, I do in, you, you know, flag some of this in the introduction, but I also study groups and the impact of groups uh, on people's well-being, on their attitudes, on their behaviour. And social cohesion could be seen as the outcome of a group that is functioning well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a link between, I guess, some of the work that I've been doing over a number of years to do with understanding group processes and intergroup relations uh, and then making some uh, more explicit links to the ideas around social cohesion, which I hope we'll get a chance to to talk about. Mm, absolutely. I, I, I think it's sort of uh, taking it to the next level about that is, is what do you think are the features then of a cohesive community, a cohesive mm. society? Yeah, uh, thanks, Anthea. For me, I think, well, for, first start, what does social cohesion mean to me? I think social cohesion to me um, is when every member of society has the opportunity to be the best they can, where they can contribute to the advancement of their society. And here, I'd say Australia, Victoria, they feel they've got that access to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also think that it all, it's also about everyone having fair access to the benefits that society has got to offer. So when we start from that premise, that's that's what it means to me. And based on that, if you look at um, opportunity for everybody to be what they want to be, um, I think there's still a way for us to go um, as a country, Australia. Um, some states are better or recognize that a bit more than the other. Um, but as a, as a country, there's a way for us to go. However... When you compare to other countries in the world, I think we're doing pretty well. We should be commended um, for recognizing um, our strengths and the benefits that um, um, a cohesive environment um, or society um, brings to the uh, how the benefits to Australia. But I mean, and when I also look back at the recent election. And one of the speech from our new Prime Minister, um, Albanese, when he said, I'm talking to every person or every young person in the Housing Commission today to say, look on your screen and have the power to dream that you too can be a Prime Minister, because that was his story of a single mother from a Housing Commission. Mm. We've seen that. And you can't be what you can't see. And his was a powerful example of when I say Australia is actually um, has made some huge strides um, in promoting social cohesion Mm. and in defining what it can be. But there are still 
a long way. There's still a way for us to go to get where I would say there's an opportunity for everybody to be all they can be. Yeah. Because that opportunity for me is like, irrespective of your race, irrespective of your financial background, the richness of your parents, um, your your gender, for you to have the opportunities that if I want to be this, um, I can be those. And those, your race, background, um, wealth, uh, gender, does not impede you. It's all about your own mm. abilities and desires to want to be what you want to be. Yeah. But that should be the... The, but right now we're still not there, mm-hmm. but we're we're getting there. Yeah. So, uh, Kate, Kate, what does social cohesion mean to you? Well, I mean, I think this is a really good question, and what Fred's talked about there, I think, is you know what some people might call you know what is what's the good life or what is a, a good society in a way. Um, and the idea of opportunity for people to be the best version of themselves and for fair access. Yeah. You know, I think our markers of, you know, uh, you know, of, of that, of what a, what is a good society, what we all should be working towards uh, and trying to achieve. When we think about, you know, how do we get there? So what, you know, what is it that enables that to happen? Uh, I guess that's where some of my focus has been, uh, where we've been looking uh, at understanding social cohesion through four different elements that uh, I seem to make it up, I guess, which whichever survey you use or whichever country's kind of talking about social cohesion or using it as a policy focus, uh, often they define it the way they've got measures for it in a way, right? So mm. uh, trust is seen to be an element. So the idea that we uh, we trust one another, right? And you could see you know, in a way, what Fred's saying, that we will trust one another when we have opportunities and fair access in a way, right? Mm. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg kind of problem. We often look at trust because we've got often measures of trust in most of the national type surveys, but trust captures more than in that. It's about positive social relations uh, between members of the group. You know, um, do they get along? Can they resolve disagreements? Um do they respect one another, right? So that's all sort of captured under that trust idea. Uh, the other one is social belonging, that people feel that they do belong. Uh, and, again, you could think that belonging is going to come out of a sense of opportunity and fair access. Um, do they do they sort of put their hand up, a bit like my parents that we talked about this morning, are they willing to participate and help others uh, is also taken as an indicator because quite often the surveys, again, will have a measure of volunteering or something like that that will give some indication of of this element. Uh, and the other one is whether people are willing to sort of, whether do they generally support the social and political institutions? Um, you know, do they think government is um, legitimate? You know, do they think the decision are reasonable, those kind of things. Now, that sounds very abstract, and I wanted to just frame it in a slightly different way. Um, so I talked before about the fact that I'm interested in groups and where we could see social cohesion as, in, as something that tells us that the group is functioning well. So if you thought about it, might be easier if you thought about a work group or a sports team than if talking about the nation mm-hmm. in a way or mm-hmm. the neighbourhood, which are a little bit more tricky to define but if you thought about a work group or a sports team you might be a member of how would you know that it was functioning well 
Um, Well, you would know it was functioning well if you did have some positive relations with the other people in your work group or in your sports team, that you felt you belonged, um, that you're willing to help other people who are on that team or in that work group. And when we talk about sort of social and political institutions, what that really means is that, you know, we kind of support the leadership and processes by which the group functions, right? That's another way to think about it, right? So lots of people here might be able to understand this cohesion question if they thought about a work group or a sports team. And the way we think about it is it's a matter of levels, not there's nothing substantively different than the way we might talk about how a group functions at work than how we might talk about uh, the way the group might function at the national level. Now, of course, there's lots more complexities, um, (laughs) but ultimately if you want to say, is the group functioning well, people could point to those things. Do we have good relations within this group? And that doesn't mean it's always positive or we always get along, but can we resolve disagreements well? Do we respect each other's opinions? It's not necessarily always an easy or positive story, but can we do those things? Do we belong? Do we want to help other people in our group? And do we support the leadership and the processes by which the group makes decisions. So, you know, if we think about cohesion in that way, it kind of is something everyone can relate to and they can also see what their part might be uh, in helping to strengthen it or build it. That's so so interesting because I, as you were explaining this and even Fred yourself um, with your way of um, explaining social cohesion, I started to think about um, my experience as a first-generation Australian in this country and how... When I was growing up, I, I really considered the differences between myself and my dad, who yep. was a migrant who came to this country versus myself, who was born here. And I felt as though when I was young, dad would project some sort of like um, pressures or onto myself, which said, you have to be super educated. You yep. have to work 10 times harder. Yep. You have to be all of these things. Yep. And as I was growing up, I started to consider, I'm like, hang on, I was actually born here all of my networks are here. I've been socialized here. I have this strong sense of belonging. Yeah. I have this tr- the feelings of trust. Yeah. Um, I feel as though I'm contributing. I feel as though I have these pov- positive relationships. I'm actually not going to internalize yeah. all of the things that my dad has had to internalize yeah. as a result of being a migrant to this country in his you know mid mid twenties. Yeah. And it's just so interesting because I think it's such a great way to look at social cohesion because as you were mentioning these things about around opportunity and access to opportunity, that's 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 why despite being an African-Australian, I feel as if I'm a part of a social socially cohesive society because I was actually born here and I, I relate to all of those points. Um, and now it's easier for me to imagine how someone who has recently moved to this country, skilled or not, would... would, would struggle or would have a harder time to sort of achieve these feelings around trust and social yeah. belonging yeah yeah so yeah. thank you for helping me understand social <laughs> cohesion from that that perspective I'm, I'm really interested in in um, maybe pulling out one particular component which I think um, is, is Lydia the way you talk about your identity mm. is particularly um, profound in regard to this and I just wonder where where this sense of identity within this country uh, what what role does that have in helping people to feel like they are part of a, a, a cohesive society? Yeah, so thanks, Anthony and Lydia, for just sharing these experiences. And <clears throat> and I'm also a first-generation... Well, yeah, I'm a first-generation Australian because I moved, well, uh, 
how do we term first generation? Yeah, but you know, my, there's actually my children <laughs> <laughs> because I've now got children that born in Australia, two in Australia, one in the UK, a baby very recently, yeah. and. Um, and well, maybe oh yeah, they're second generation. They're exactly, there's actually this a few ways to look at it, and <laughs> I, I looked this up myself because yeah. yeah. I I could be considered a second generation, generation myself, but I'm a firstborn in well, Australia, so I, I'm yeah, a first generation so Australian. I think you're a second generation. <laughs> okay, your there dad's we have the it. first one. There okay, we go. there we go. <laughs> so I share a lot of things with your dad because that's how yeah. I had to um, operate too. So. Even when you look at my story from the UK, um, I moved from the UK here to Australia, but I also moved from Nigeria is my origin. I moved to Nigeria from Nigeria to the UK um, when I was 16. And um, I faced some challenges then too and um, in settling into a, a, a foreign environment. But, and then I also thought to myself, what do I want to be? Where do I want to go? And what opportunities are there for me? Um, prior to moving, I've always known I wanted to be an accountant. Um, and um, and I also thought I'd want to work for a big four professional services firm because that was like the apex of um, professional working if you're in the accountancy mm-hmm. profession. Um, but I also knew that because I was working, I was studying in the, I went to university in the UK, but I knew when I finished, I was an international student. I knew there would be challenges in you getting a work permit to work after that, and also even securing a job too, because it's an incredibly competitive field. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I tried to do from the right from the start was try to be the best I could be in whatever I did. So even before university, when I was in um, sort of equivalent of high school, doing my A levels, and I worked, um, I knew I needed to. Um, get some really good skills and experience, Australian experience, uh, sorry, not Australian, then UK experience mm-hmm. under my belt. And um, I worked, um, I applied for some job at a filling station as a cleaner. I was a cleaner, cleaning the pumps in the filling station. Boy, I did it so well. They were really impressed with me. And sooner or later, they made, um, promoted me to become a cashier inside the, mm-hmm. um, inside the petrol station. And I also won three awards from Shell UK for outstanding <laughs> customer <laughs> services. Um, and even when That's I was amazing. cleaning the pump too, it was with smiles on my face and, you know, engagement. And I did it so well with them. And I got those awards. And those were awards I used. I've still got a book that I put all my letters and <laughs> yeah. awards from all those people. And then in university too, I said, okay, I need to pay attention. Sorry. I need to pay attention and I need to do really well in school. And um, from start, I took my education very seriously. And um, and that led to me also being like the rep for my course. So it's not also education saying, what else do you do? What's there about you? So I knew just to set myself apart. Mm-hmm. So I knew there were challenges in front. So how do you set yourself apart? So it's also having a vision and a goal for yourself and working towards that goal, not coasting along. I couldn't afford to coast along and say, hey, mm-hmm. whatever um, the you know, things fall, yeah. whatever. It yeah. says, I know I had to be planned and deliberate in what I did. So I, I became the rep for my course, for my accounting course. And so I, later I also become the faculty rep for the business school. And I also graduated with the first class honors in accounting and finance. Mm-hmm. And also I won some prizes in being the best, most outstanding performing student 
in university. Wow. So, so, so this is really interesting. So, um, and Kate, so I, I'm interested in your views about this because there were there was clearly influence from your father and yep. and from your family yep. that enabled you to actually have a very clear sense of who you were yeah. in regard to the communities in which you then participated yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Kate, what what is the role of that that individual identity in regard to contributing to social cohesion overall? How how does the two things go together? Interesting question. I was just trying to reflect a little bit, you know, through the discussion. I mean, here we have, you know, some examples uh, of, you know, very deliberate choices, right? Mm. You know, um, you know, very explicit thinking choices, right? And I, you know, I don't think everyone's career path, you know, is defined in that way, right? So there is a sense um, with Lydia and Fred that, you know, they, they've had this sense of of where they want to be. They've recognised it could be difficult, right, for a whole range of reasons and made some very explicit, deliberate choices. Um, and we can see themes of, obviously, ability with being able to, to succeed in those studies, but also effort and perseverance. So there is a sense in which, you know, everyone in some way... Um, thinking through, doing career planning, you know, thinking of setbacks, uh, you know, being taken through a similar kind of process uh, would be incredibly beneficial. You've done it because of your family examples or because of you know you want to, you're somewhere and you want to be somewhere different. But they've also, Um, Kate, they've also got a level of trust that if they actually do put themselves out there, that there will be a benefit so there is that sense of trust Absolutely. within the, the, yes. the groups in that which you then are mixing. And that was, I would say, that level of trust, I would say, uh, is linked to my identity, my father, my mother, to say, if you study hard and you educate yourself, mm. you can actually overcome a lot of barriers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And it's yeah. that then. So in my family, it wasn't an option whether you're going to university. The question <laughs> yeah. is, what were you going to study, study. <laughs> university? That's right. Yeah. But, that, so but they, they had the same level of trust. Yeah. Sorry, Kate. Yeah, so they have a trust, you know, in the system in which they're, they're in, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there is this view that a university, you know, is, you know, often gets to a point of inclusion earlier than other sectors of a, of a society, uh, so, you know, it's a, it, there was some sort of trust there that if you did X, you'd be rewarded. The system would not be unfair, which is your point earlier, Fred, um, that it was a system that was based on this idea of effort, performance, um, ability, and that that was going to be rewarded as opposed to, you know, other ways in which people might get ahead. So I guess that is a sense of trust in that in the university system itself or the education system more broadly in the way it works. It's almost um, as if, yeah, the trust element, you don't have to have a uniform sense of trust in this country in order to sort of feel as if you're a part of a socially cohesive system. Because you, in your case, you had trust in your ability and in, in the objective process that university has, which is that if you are an excellent student, you will come out as an excellent student. It's interesting how the trust can come from different places or can be in different it, it things. Is, but it's also really interesting about how an individual interprets it because yeah. I think it, I think there's 
certain perspectives, like yeah. yours, Fred, have suggested that Australia is a place in which you can uh, feel comfortable about the institutions that are here. You yeah. get a sense that there is a degree of fairness, yeah. but mm-hmm. yet there are still people who um, come to Australia or or are living here, born in Australia, who don't feel that sense of trust within the the broader community. That there is there are elements that just don't seem to be going in their favour, no matter how many times they put themselves out there. So I'm just thinking, um, Kate, around this, the, these dynamics around social cohesion and how much they move and, and the connectivity between the individual and then the broader sort of levels of society. Yeah, no, I think that everyone has is navigating these in different kinds of ways and experience, I mean, you know, it, I mean, people's experience is going to be very informative in the views that they that they have about themselves, their community, and the cohesiveness of, of the nation, so to speak. Mm. You know, so you know, and that's why we have to be so concerned about um, I don't know discrimination or um, or racism, right? So you know, if people have those experiences, well, then they're not going to trust. They're not going to feel that they are belonging, and so. Mm. There are some key areas where you think that um, doing something about that could be very beneficial um, for all of these kind of reasons. But, yeah, day-to-day experience. No one is saying hello to you on the streets. Uh, I've been involved in um, an organisation that tries to organise a welcome dinner uh, for, well, in this case it was international students, but it could, could also be um uh newcomers i guess to australia uh, and when these dinners get organized many people say they've never been in someone's home they've never they've never been invited anywhere they've never been properly welcomed i mean all these you know not having those experiences mean you're less likely to want to do other things day to day in a community yeah yep. absolutely absolutely yeah I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> it's it's so interesting, yeah. Belonging and uh, yeah. Once again, just thinking about it through that framework, I think is is quite easy and mm-hmm. and help and really helpful for the average yeah. person. Yeah. So, which leads me um, from a perspective of it's your own experiences and which can be very different depending on your background. Say, if you look from a say maybe migrant point of view, and if I talk from an African Australian community point of view, you've got a two tier system. You've got um, African-Australians here that come from highly skilled migrant backgrounds. I came from a highly skilled migrant background, and most people from Nigeria, Kenya, Zimbabwe would do that. And then you also have others that come from more of a refugee background. Mm. Um, And I think they've got different experiences. Oh, absolutely. And they've got very unique challenges (laughs) to to them. and, um, you know, some that don't come, apart from refugee background, also non-English speaking background, mm-hmm. which adds to that those challenges too. Yeah, so if you want to have a, a, a cohesive society, it's part of the role of society in general yeah. to actually help those people that might be feeling more at sea, uh, that they can have confidence in the things around them and that in actual fact some things will yeah. work out in, in the right direction by uh, watching others. Absolutely. I also think there should be even more intensive work with any new migrant that's coming to Australia with those unique skill needs for them to be well supported in terms of um, 
programs that help if it's language skills, um, if it's cultural understanding skills, etc., to help them understand and work with this cohort right from the very start. Mm. Not when... Yeah, right from the start. Not when yeah. things, issues <laughs> yeah. start to pop yeah. up mm. and then it goes into a spiral of decline then because they're easily identifiable and mm-hmm. they've gone yeah. down this path and then it's like you're focusing on the issues that are causing them. But yeah. again, this goes back to Kate's original points about what we should be looking for to ensure a cohesive society about people's ability to help others yes. and, and encouraging society to be more comfortable to reach out to others that might yeah. be in, in some degree of need if you do it within your local area or within an organisation that can reach out to more or in supporting other organisations that might be at a, of, at a greater distance. It's also like, you know, um, it's almost as if thinking about it, like these programs that you're suggesting yeah. would be great to have yeah. would be initiated by um, members in the society who do feel that sense of... Um, belonging and and feel that willingness um that kate was talking about to help others and it's almost as if you would i can imagine this society being socially cohesive if those members who already feel established do initiate those programs and those new people who are coming um you know have a willingness to participate and then there'll just be this nice as positive social relations (laughs) kate yeah i was just going to say um you know, I think we you could think about the way in which we've thought about being a successful multicultural society in Australia. Uh, and, you know, it, it sort of started, I think, with lots of migrant settlement support, right? So they were some awareness that different groups might need different support, that we might have to put effort into language and education and those kind of skills. And so I think you could define lots of our work initially in this space probably uh you know through the 80s and 90s around that kind of set of ideas then we also moved to tolerance i think you know anti-racism you know more awareness around tolerance i think and there's lots of different views about that word but it was uh, a sense in which you know we wanted to i guess be more respectful denounce sort of hatred and discrimination you know that was another big effort but I think we're moving into, you know, uh, another phase and I think we could move in it more deliberately by programs like this and other efforts uh, from different organisations to actually think about active cultural relations, right? That's active. That's where people are making decisions and I think post-COVID, you know, it's a timely occasion because I think there have been shifts in the way people think about their relations and their communities through COVID to think, okay, what is the community that I want to live in and I want to help create in my area? You know, and it's back a little bit to this idea of civil society perhaps and, and my parents. You know, what what is it that you're willing to do to ensure that the children and the families and the community in which you'll live is going to be set up in a way so that people can thrive and flourish? And it is not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone's able to do that. Mm. Uh, but for those where there is an a, there is a, an opening, a willingness um, to think about those questions, I think it's very timely to think. Well, what am I doing to create this community that I want to live in? And of course, community is another word for the nation, right? Yeah. What what do I do every day to make where I am or my interactions with others to be positive, welcoming, helpful, respectful? You know, and that's 
it, it can't just come down to individuals. There needs to be a whole scaffolding around that. But that's mm. a good question for people to ask themselves. Yes. We all know the benefits of living in a cohesive uh, society. We all know the benefits of coming together to solve problems. Uh, and actually, it's only through those efforts that things actually change. So, you know, what do we want to do? Um, perhaps that's locally, perhaps that's in the sports team, perhaps that's in a work group to actually live the kind of society we want for mm. ourselves, our children, future generations. And I think we're opening up a conversation around that, which uh, is leading us back, I think, towards uh, those civil society actions that used to be much more common Um in Australia. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly true. And I actually think um, it, that's a great place to, to sort of come to a bit of a conclusion. But Fred, just before we do, I think it, it might be worth you just reflecting a bit on the role of the African Music and Cultural Festival as, as a vehicle by which you've actually tried to reach out to contribute to uh, that cohesive society and integrating with others. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes. <clears throat> So the African Music and Cultural Festival was um, founded now nine years. This is in the ninth year. We promote um, more tolerance <laughs> and understanding of the relatively new African-Australian community through music, arts, food. We provide a platform that a wider Australian community can engage with in an easy format to redefine the image of African-Australians, especially and also more positive narrative about African-Australians. Um, so if you come there now and you try some food from South Sudan or you watch a performance from South Sudan, um, you'll have a different experience or understanding yeah. of this culture versus what you might have seen maybe in the media or elsewhere. And yeah. it's those type of interactions. Well, it's, it's it's active social relations, as, mm. as Kate social. just mentioned. It's, a, it's an incredibly important thing that people actually get underway and do. And even though it might have been, you know, a bit of a struggle at the beginning to uh, get the sort of um, yep. publicity and, and the commitment that you needed, now uh, it's a really big deal. Absolutely. And also for when you look at um, Kate's five areas of social cohesion when she talks about trusting one another, um, social belonging. For African Australians, when you're there at the music festival, this is right at Fed Square, right in the middle of Melbourne, a premier location. We take over that <laughs> and there's the music, there's a vibe and everybody's happy and having fun and everyone's coming over there and they think, wow, that we as African Australians can actually create such an event, mm. the sense of pride yeah. and dignity and um, satisfaction and just happiness that they feel of any African yeah. Australian that walks in there and they see it to a high standard and and also even the the support that we also get as African Music and Cultural Festival, we get from, from the federal. Last time we, we've had for three years in a row letters of support from the prime minister, mm -hmm. uh, former prime minister now, for three years in a row, oh, wow. from the state government, um, the premier here, mm -hmm. from the Lord Mayor, and the Lord Mayor and the ministers are always there as, as well as other um, sort of dignitaries and captains of industry. So the support that we bring um, and we 
to to showcase the best of African Australian. And the, and the wonderful thing about that is that it's not the only one. One is yeah. not the only event that happens within the African yes. communi- Australian yeah. communities. Yeah. It's not the only event that yeah. happens across Australia mm-hmm. that actually is celebrating so many yeah. of these things. So this these active social relations, I think, is it's a wonderful point at which to mm-hmm. sort of conclude it our is. conversation around how does social cohesion exist because something about the Voices of Australia podcast is really to ensure that people understand that social cohesion is what it is to you. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessarily something that people just say that's what it is in a sentence and yep. therefore nobody has any relationship to it. It's actually something that's evolving every minute, every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we're absolutely thrilled that both of you have been a part of this uh, this podcast and this conversation and um, and sharing the stories that you have, both personal and um and from an, a more intellectual perspective, it's been uh, really beneficial and we've loved it. So thank you both very much for being here. Yeah, thank absolutely. You, thank you. I'm going to use thank this you, framework Lydia. to think <laughs> about and discuss this topic over the course of the podcast. So thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.